Standard Version. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow... There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it is said? See, this is new. It has all been, it has been already, and In the ages before us, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. And we pray that you would now sweeten this word uh, in our hearts and in our lives, that we together might grow in our knowledge of you and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path, praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, a feast... Have you ever heard this proverb, a feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. (laughs) Have any of you ever heard a sermon on that text before? That's actually Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Now, if there's any verse in the Bible which is a great illustration of the fact that you have to understand a verse in its context to rightly understand it, this is, this is that example. Not my text for this morning. I really have uh, two goals. I, I really do want us to understand the whole of Ecclesiastes better. So that as we understand the whole better, we're able to understand the parts better. And that kind of odd proverb that I read to you from 1019 really does make sense when you read it in context. Now, in short, the message of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, in my estimation, is navigating the maze. But you see, you've got to read Ecclesiastes in the context of the book of Proverbs. The message of Proverbs is walking the path. Proverbs is, um, it, it just kind of gives you the basic principles of wisdom. And in short, it says if you're good, you're blessed, and if you're bad, you're, you're blasted. I mean, that's kind of Proverbs short and sweet. Uh, it's like ninth grade biology. It's not much concerned with all the exceptions to all the rules and all the sophistication. It just wants you to get this idea that, that living well benefits us. And it, it, it not only teaches us that in theory, but it gives us all sorts of illustrations. You might uh, summarize the book of Ecclesiastes. Sorry. Uh, the verse that just came to mind uh, is the verse that my mother wrote in my first Bible. I shared a little with Mike that about a a month ago, I had the privilege of 
spending my mother's last five days by her bedside, along with my brother and sister. She had been hospitalized, and I decided to go up and visit her. Didn't know if I'd be visiting in the hospital or at home. But when I got to the hospital, I knew she wasn't going home. Uh, The first day, she was cogent and clear. We had wonderful conversations. But with each day, life just ebbed away. Uh, Until on the final day, uh, the only thing she could say was, Mom. That's the only word she said all morning long. And of course, we don't know what she was saying, but it was as if she had one foot in this world and one foot in the world to come. And she could see her mother, but wasn't quite there yet. About 11 hours later, in her sleep, she just breathed her last. But the verse that she put in my Bible was, Trust in the Lord. With all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he'll make your path straight. Well the fact of the matter is. Sometimes life is much more like a maze. Than it is a straight path. And how do you deal with that? Well the book of Proverbs doesn't give us much direction. See. The book of Proverbs is teaching us the basics of what life is like when it's a straight path. But God knows that it's always not like a straight path. Sometimes it's like finding ourselves in a maze. And so he's given us the book of Ecclesiastes to help us to navigate life when it's more like a maze than a straight path. And so we want to look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we can't do it in one Sunday, so we're starting another little mini-series here, which I'm presuming the, uh, the elders are going to be kind enough to invite me back sometime. But I look at Ecclesiastes, and I see that it teaches three themes, and the first theme is the one that we're looking at this morning, and it's what we all think of when we think of the book of Ecclesiastes, yes or yes, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And and I chose the ESV because it preserves that word vanity, and we're going to talk more about that. But there's another theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, and Lord willing, that'll be our next sermon. And it's, it's not facing the vanity of life, it's finding joy and satisfaction in life. Now, how many of you who know the book of Ecclesiastes at all, if someone were to say to you, take me to a book in the Bible where one of the major themes is joy and satisfaction, how many of you would say, ah, that's an easy one, that's a no-brainer, Ecclesiastes. Well, it is. It's one of the three main themes. And, and how is it that you can face the vanity of life and find joy and satisfaction in life? It's because of the third and final theme, and that is fearing God throughout all of life. A wonderful book. This morning, just that first theme, facing the vanity of life. And... Uh, While I read the introductory section of the book, 1, 1 through 11, I really just want to look at a couple of key ideas in the first three verses. Just big picture in terms of the book of Ecclesiastes, there are are three sections to it. I read you the first one, 1 uh, 1 through 11, and you'll notice uh, how it it talks about the, um, the preacher in the third person, the words of the preacher the son of David. Well, when we go to the end of the book in Proverbs 12, 9, we come back to talking about the preacher in the third person. So the beginning of the book, we're talking about the preacher. The end of the book, we're talking about the preacher. The whole large middle section of the book is the teaching of the preacher. I, the preacher, I looked for this, I looked for that, I searched here, I searched there. This book really is part of the wisdom tradition. What we have here, I believe, is a father. And the father is talking to his son about the preacher. And then he actually takes the teachings of the preacher and he sits down with his son and they read the words of the preacher together. 
And then at the end, he says, now, son, let me explain a few things about the words of the preacher so that you can really apply this teaching uh, to your life because it's pretty profound. You know, Proverbs, uh, listen to the teaching of your father. Do not uh, forsake the instruction of your mother. The wisdom tradition is being passed on from one generation to another, from parent to child. And that's Ecclesiastes where the, 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 the parent says to the child, let me tell you about the preacher. And uh, then he reads him the works of the preacher and then he says, let me explain and apply some of that to your life. Now, I've been using the word preacher here. Uh, the ESV uses the word preacher I'm not sure what all the, the um, translations do. Preacher actually comes, goes back to Martin Luther's translation. Uh, Martin Luther used the word prediger, uh, German for preacher. But you'll notice if you have maybe an, an English Standard Version or some other translation, maybe alongside preacher they give you a footnote. Um, the footnote says, or convener, or collector, Hebrew Kohelet with a capital Q. I'm going to call the guy Kohelet. Um, the, the word Kohel means to gather. And that's what this guy did. We know from the end of the book that he not only gathered proverbs, but he also gathered people so that he could teach the people that he gathered the wise material that he had gathered. So he's really gatherer. But he's gatherer, capital G. You know, kind of like, do we have any Smiths here? We have a Smith. Do we have any Bakers here? Well, you know, Smith used to be lower S, like a wood Smith, a metal Smith. A Smith was a, a, a person with a craft. A Baker was somebody who did what for a living? They baked. Uh, but then they had done it so long that, that we capitalized it and it became a name. So a common noun, Smith, Baker, becomes a proper noun. I have found out that that's the case with Futado. Uh, Futado's not actually our ancestral name. It's only a couple generations old. Our ancestral name is actually Zabo, S-Z-A-B-O. And if you know any Hungarians, Zabo's kind of like Smith in American culture or Kim in Korean culture. Uh, Zabo is a very common Hungarian name. But when my great-great-grandfather moved to um, uh, Magyar Hermani, it was the first town in Hungary that had an iron furnace. And he was looking for work, and they needed somebody to work the bellows to keep the furnace going. So he got a job working the bellows. And so he was Futato, the bellow worker. And all of a sudden, it got capitalized. And so Zabos are now Futatos, or Fatatas, or Futatos, or Futatos, um, however you choose to pronounce it. Um, I have aunts and uncles and cousins. We all pronounce the name differently. That's why when anybody says, how do you pronounce your name? I say, well, which one would you like? <laughs> Bottom line is, uh, we could properly just translate this as a name. His name is Kohelet. Uh, and so I'm just going to use that Hebrew tradition and refer to him as Kohelet from time to time. Okay, well, with that being said, facing the vanity of life. There are only two things that I want to look at from verses 1 through 3 this morning. And the first one is that English word vanity, and what does the underlying Hebrew word mean? And why did I choose to use the ESV that says vanity of vanities instead of the NIV that says meaningless, meaningless? So we want to look at this idea of vanity, because if we're going to face the vanity of life, it sure would help to know what it is. And then the second thing that we want to look at is this other phrase, under the sun. Facing the vanity of life under the sun. You with me? Just two things. Vanity and under the sun. So first of all, that word vanity. Well, Hebrew, Hebrew lesson for you. Uh, the word is hevel. Very easy. Everybody say hevel. 
kind of like bevel with an H. Uh, hevel. No strange sounds in this one. No clearing your throat or anything of the sort. We have all these letters. Hevel. That's the Hebrew word that is translated vanity. And the reason why I, I use the ESV is because... I can kind of tell you what vanity means because we really don't have any good idea. It's not a very good word to translate the Hebrew word, um, but that makes it good for me because I can tell you what I think it means. Whereas if I use the NIV, meaningless, meaningless, you think you know what it means, so I have a little bit more work to do because i got to overcome what you think it means. Does that make sense? See, when, when you hear the word vanity... You either think of the magazine, Vanity Fair, or you think of the song, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You. When you hear the word vanity, you think of somebody that looks in the mirror too much. Well, this doesn't have anything to do with that, which is why it's not a very good word. So let's talk about what the Hebrew word hevel is that underlies this word vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. There are two key ideas. As I look at all the uses, all the places in Ecclesiastes where this word vanity occurs, there are two ideas that, that are always associated with this idea of vanity or hevel. And the first is that life is frustrating. Everybody say frustrating. Have you ever been frustrated? Uh, like maybe in the last hour or so. Frustrating. Frustration is very simple. Frustration is having a goal and being blocked from getting there. That's all it is. Nothing more, nothing less. It does come in two varieties. If I have a goal and I perceive that you're blocking me from getting there, we call that kind of frustration anger. If I have a goal and I think I'm stopping myself from getting there, we call that kind of frustration guilt. Guilt and anger are pretty much the same thing. It's just that one of them is looking out at you and one of them is looking in at me. But that's frustration. Frustration is the feeling you have when you're late uh, heading for church, which here I'm sure never happens. You're on a two-lane road like 512, uh, and somebody has the audacity to be driving the speed limit in front of you. That's frustration. Having a goal and being blocked from getting there. Well, look at verses, uh, look at verse uh, 3 in chapter 1. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question means it's a question that the answer is obvious. In one word, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What's the answer? What's he gained? Nothing. Is that why he toiled? Did he toil to gain nothing? No, he had another goal. He had dreams. He had hopes. He had aspirations. That's why he was toiling. But in the end, there's that great leveler that Ecclesiastes will continue to bring before our purview that great leveler called death that none of us can escape. And it seems as if we toil for nothing. That's part of what this vanity is. Unrealized goals. Unrealized dreams. Have you had them? Small ones. Large ones. Maybe related to your vocation. Maybe related to your spouse. How many people enter into marriage... You know, it's interesting how the circle of life keeps going. Um, my mother passed away just about a month ago. Uh, but in place of my mother, I'm getting a new daughter. Uh, my middle son is getting married at the end of June. And my third son, who was the first son to get married, uh, they're having a baby boy. 
and so the circle of life continues by God's grace. Uh, but you know, we, we, how many people when they got married, got married so that they could have a miserable relationship and in six years end up in an ugly divorce? No, that's frustration in a most profound way. That's vanity. That's having dreams and goals and aspirations. The book of Ecclesiastes uses a a metaphor for this, and it runs throughout the book. It's called Chasing After the Wind. Life can be like chasing after the wind. Imagine in your mind's eye, it's a, it's a brisk, windy uh, Sunday morning. And after church, um, somebody puts the Bible on the roof of the car. While, while I'm not going to say whether it's a he or she, it could be either. But you know, this is a really spiritual Bible. Because it has like bulletins from the last six months that are still in it. And uh, something knocks that Bible off and the wind is blowing and all this stuff is blowing. Can you imagine trying to run after all of that and catch all those bulletins? Well, this is not trying to catch the bulletins. This is trying to catch the wind itself. Vanity of vanities. It's like chasing the wind. Like the proverbial dog chasing its own tail. How can you possibly, if that's your goal, you're inevitably going to be what? You're going to be frustrated. And so, you see, part of what Ecclesiastes wants us to do is it wants us to just face and embrace the fact that life is not always a straight path. Life is not always the fulfillment of dreams and goals and desires. Sometimes it's the opposite of that. Sometimes it's frustrating. And so if you experience that frustration, there is nothing new under the sun. This is part of what it means to live in the world that you and I are currently experiencing. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you're unspiritual. It means you're human. Vanity of vanities, that frustration. Well, this word hevel not only means frustrating, it also means perplexing. Because sometimes life is not only frustrating, sometimes life is perplexing. Now, the NIV is good because it translates Hevel, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's good, but it's not so good because it doesn't get the perplex, it doesn't get the frustrating side. Uh, there, we don't have one word in, in English that means frustrating and perplexing, but we do have one in Hebrew, it's called Hevel. And that's the word that is being used here. That life is not only at times frustrating, it can also be very perplexing. How many of you can say that you understand clearly everything that has happened in your life or in the lives of other people around you? You can't understand God's ways. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11. Ecclesiastes 3, 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Uh, I probably have said this before, but as I've grown, I think it's growth, as I have gotten older, and this is not hyperbole, I know a lot less than I used to know. When I was a young pastor, I knew everything. I did. And the reason why I knew everything was because I had to know everything because my inner personal life could not tolerate anything unknown or any loose ends. And so if I didn't know the answer, I would simply make it up. I would. I had to. Because there was no room in my psyche for mystery. The hardest three words for me to say when I was a young pastor were what? I don't know. Man, I say those words all the time now. I'm serious. I know far less than I used to know. Life is just mysterious to me. Now that doesn't mean that I don't know anything. 
hopefully I know something. Uh, there, are th- there are things that God does in your life that you understand, right? Clear as the, clear as, I don't know, whatever. Clear as something. Clear as the nose on my face, there. But there sure are things that are perplexing in life. And why life plays out the way it plays out. Uh, if you have more than one child, you know, they came from the exact same DNA stock. How different they can be. Our first and third were like raising 12. Our second and fourth came out on autopilot. I don't think those two needed parents. Wow, how different our kids are. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. And um, hard to understand at times what's going on in life. Can't understand God's ways. You, you can't always know the future, can you? That would be one wealthy person who could know the future. If you could only know when the stocks are going up and when they're going down. You simply buy low, you sell high. You buy low, you sell high. Inestimable wealth if you could only predict the future. One of my favorite proverbs is, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes is 7.14. When times are prosperous, be happy. But when times are uh, full of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other so that nobody can know what the future holds. It may be prosperity. It may be adversity. We just don't know what the future holds. Several days before my mother went into the hospital, she was full of life. Now, she had some medical issues, but oddly enough, none of those medical issues took her life. For years, she had had an inoperable aneurysm, right on the, an aortic aneurysm on the wall of her heart. My paramedic boy said, Dad, if that one goes, she'll never even know what hit her. She would have maybe seconds to live. As far as I know, till the day she died, that aneurysm was still sitting there. Those things didn't take her. Before she, she was driving, she was full of vim, she was full of vigor. My brother was there, they were baking together. And uh, who would have thought that within two short weeks, she'd be gone? You, she didn't. Even when I got to the hospital, she's talking about going home and what's going to be like when she gets back into her own house and her own bed. She didn't know what the next five days held. None of us do. We just don't know what the future holds. We can't understand life under the sun. Look at chapter 8 and verse 17. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 17. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. So if you are perplexed about why things go the way they do in the world, if you are perplexed about why things go the way they go in your own life, The best are perplexed. The wisest. They can't figure it out either. You're in good company. Now, I'm an outsider. I've been here a lot, I know, but I'm still an outsider. But I'm going to dare as an outsider to at least raise the question as to whether or not perhaps some of you are a little bit frustrated Or maybe you're a little bit perplexed because Mike is leaving. I don't know you very well, but I just am guessing that there might be a little bit of frustration here. That there might be a little bit of perplexity about what God is doing. and Maybe about what Mike is doing or what the elders are doing or... Maybe the elders are perplexed as well. Well, I'm, I'm only here to stir the pot. I'm not going to presume to try to deal with these issues as an outsider, but I do want to say if that's how you feel, that's okay. 
You're human. Don't pretend you feel one way when you really feel another way. And I'm sure the elders are going to make ways for you to be able to talk through all of this because this is part of life. And Ecclesiastes says, face it. Embrace it. It's part of what it means to walk the path. You see, it's not always a straight path. It's not what life is always like. I dare say that some of you perhaps thought that uh, you and Mike were just going to sail off into the sunset. (laughs) All of you permanently retire in the great retirement center in heaven together. It was just very clear and very straight, and now you find that life's looking more like a maze. What's the future hold? Who's God going to bring? What's going to happen? Guess what? You don't know. But there is one who does. And you're in God's hand. So uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not trying to stir the pot. Uh, and I'm not trying to solve all the issues. The only thing I want to do is I just want to give you the freedom based on the teaching of the book of Ecclesiastes to just face how you feel, face what you're thinking. If you're frustrated, if you're perplexed about this or other things, it's okay. It's human. God understands. God knows that vanity of vanities, all is vanity, is one of the themes of Ecclesiastes because sure enough, it's one of the themes of life. Now, in this verse that we just read, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. You see, we can't always understand God's ways. We can't know the future. We can't always understand life under the sun, that's the second thing we need to look at. What's that mean? Because this frustration, this perplexity, this hevel, this vanity of vanities is something that we experience under the sun. Well, before we look at what it does mean, let me just say what I don't think it does mean, which is what it's often interpreted to mean, and that means life apart from a relationship with God. Often we think that under the sun means life you know, a worldly life apart from a heavenly life, apart from a relationship with God. Well, that's a little bit troublesome as an interpretation. Uh, number one, it's troublesome because it sure doesn't square with reality. Because if, that, if that's what it means, if under the sun means apart from a relationship with God, then vanity of vanities is characteristic of those who live apart from a relationship with God. And so if you experience frustration and vanity, you must be living apart from a relationship with God. But you're not. You're related to God. You're connected with God by grace through faith. And since you're connected with God and you still experience the vanity of life, the vanity of life can't possibly mean based on our experience Uh, a life that is lived apart from a relationship with God. But even more problematic is that's simply not the way this phrase is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's used with two very closely related senses. Under the sun, and this is no surprise, simply means in this world. Where do you live in relationship to the sun? Above it? Beside it? In it? Where do you live? You live under it. Life lived out under the sun is simply life lived out in this world. Look at chapter 6.12. Because chapter 6.12 talks about under the sun in terms of during this life. Who knows what is good for a man, notice, while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow, for who can tell him what will, hap- what will be after him under the sun? Who knows what's good for a man while he lives? Who can tell him what will happen after him under the sun? Under the sun is while he's alive. It's during this life. And uh, coupled with that, it's not only during this life, it's also clearly before death, Go to 9, 3 through 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 3 and following. This is an evil in all that is done. Where? Under the sun. 
that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. See, under the sun is while people are living. Um, and after that, they go to the dead. After under the sun, they go to the dead. So under the sun simply means during this life before you die. And it makes perfect sense because we are living under the sun. But there's more to it than that. I would modify that phrase in this world with one other word. In this fallen world. That's what under the sun means. In this world as it has been adversely affected by our rebellion against God. You'll remember the children's catechism. In what a state did God create our first parents? Two H words. He made them holy and happy. That's God's original creational design for the world. There is no frustration there. There is no perplexity there. Adam and Eve didn't have a perplexing moment in their relationship before the fall. They never had that experience of going to take a a piece of fruit off a tree and not finding it there or finding that it's bruised or rotten or spoiled. Every goal they had fulfilled, every dream came true, every desire experienced, they were holy. They were happy. And then they took the wrong fruit and that's when this sin and misery came into play. That's the birth of vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The world not running any longer the way God originally in creation intended it to run. Uh, Interesting. Go to chapter 3 and verse 20. We'll only look at one verse, but there are a number that have this theme. Ecclesiastes 3, 20. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Now, obviously, Kohelet is referring to death. But he's not merely referring to death. He's referring to death as death is articulated in a particular text in the Bible. From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Kohelet has Genesis chapter 3 clearly in view. Here's a simple way to think of the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a biblical commentary on Genesis chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Where God curses the ground... And God curses the serpent and the man and the woman experience the vanity of vanities. There's a word that occurs with regard to the man's experience and the, the woman's experience that is related to a word that runs in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just think about the woman's experience. Now, I'm not a woman. I can't speak as a woman. I have been married to one for... 39 years come July. I kind of, I think I understand a little bit about what it means to be a woman. I'm an outsider. You know, one of the things that a woman, I think down in the core of her being, knows that she was created for was to be a mother. That's why, you see, men are, men are kind of like wild energy. And, and men need the domestication of a woman. Men need that, the, the, the taming of a woman. There's a, a, an interesting book, older book by a sociologist, Gilder, Uh, When he published the book, he wanted to call it sexual suicide 
but it was a little too racy for back in the day, and they ended up calling it men in marriage. His basic thesis is that, um, that men have all of this wild energy, but a woman is connected to the future. She's connected to history. And here's how the domestication works. She basically says to him, if you want to have sex, you have got to be a good husband and a good father. You've got to produce family. You've got to produce culture. Otherwise... See, he needs that kind of domestication. And Gilder says, if you want to see where that, if you want to see what life is like, where that doesn't take place, he says, look at any ghetto. He says, ghetto has nothing to do with race. Nothing to do with race. Everything to do with gender and sexuality. A woman down deep inside is connected to the future. I cannot imagine the frustration and the perplexity of not being able to bear a child. I can't imagine it. Or to, or to bear a child like a woman that I know and eight and a half months into the pregnancy, say, I, I don't feel the baby moving. And to go to the doctor and find out that life is gone. And have to carry a child for two more weeks. And to deliver a stillborn child. Or to go into the nursery in the middle of the night to check on that little toddler. And to find that for some inexplicable reason... There's no life there anymore. Or to raise a, a child to the day after graduation from high school like a friend of mine. And he's getting married. And he's driving down the country road. And the maid of honor's driving out the country road. And they're in a collision and they both die on the day of the wedding. The, the, the potential. See, when it, when it says to women, in pain you will bear children... I wish that were just labor pain that I've never experienced and I know is pretty miserable. It's far more profound than that. It's, a, it's the potential at every point along the way of having to say it was all for nothing and I have no idea why. That's Ecclesiastes. That's vanity of vanities. Or of the man. It says of the man that, um, that he's going to have to work against the ground. With this same word, with toil, he's going to have to eke out a living. He was a farmer in the ancient world. That's why the imagery is the imagery of a farmer. He's no longer easily taking fruit off the trees. He's working against thorns and thistles all the days of his life in a battle. And who wins the battle? Absolutely every time. The ground. And how do we know? From dust you came, and to dust you will return. Frustration. Vanity. It was all for nothing. Now, there's a lot more that we could say. I do want to just say one thing. Oh, I'll save that. <laughs> well, I'll at least tell you, and I'll defend it next time I come to preach. I think that when the author says vanity of vanities, everything is vanity, he's using a figure of speech called hyperbole. We've probably talked about this before. I know you have to be careful when you talk about there being hyperbole in the Bible. Give me a one-word definition of hyperbole that starts with E. Exaggeration. Tell me one thing your mother told you to never do because it's lying. Exaggerate. So if I say there's hyperbole in the Bible, and you know you're not supposed to exaggerate because exaggerating is lying, you can easily think that I'm saying there are what in the Bible? Lies. 
Hyperbole is not exaggerating for the purpose of deceiving. It's exaggerating for the purpose of making your point with power. It took forever to get home last night. We use hyperbole all the time. Well, hyperbole actually is a very common figure of speech, like similes, like metaphors. And not only is our speech in our culture full of hyperbole, but so is the Bible. There are a lot of places where the Bible contains hyperbole. Vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. Everything is frustrating. Everything is perplexing. I simply ask you, is that true of your life? You mean there's nothing that you understand? There's no joy and satisfaction in life at all? Of course there is. And how do you know that for sure? Well, you come back the next time I come to preach because that's our next theme. (laughs) Joy and satisfaction in life. But I did want to make that comment. So why the hyperbole? Why vanity of vanities? Everything is vanity. It's because the book of Ecclesiastes is a call to biblical realism. It doesn't want us to be Pollyannish in our approach to life. It doesn't want to be us to be overly simplistic. It's a call to realism that there are times when life can be very frustrating and very perplexing. And don't try to pretend that's not the case when it is. Face it. In the language of my friend Steve Brown, deal with it. It's part of what life is. Do not think that spirituality means being the proverbial ostrich. Where when life is frustrating and perplexing, you've got to just bury your head in the sand. You've got to bite the bullet um, and pretend that things are really very good when they're not. Biblical realism. Now that doesn't mean that the book of Ecclesiastes is a call to negativity or despair. I've preached here enough that I think you know that I don't live on the negative side of life. You know, the question, is the cup half full or half empty? My answer is neither. My cup runs over, right? (laughs) Psalm 23. My cup is neither half full or half empty. The cup is running over. So this is not a call to negativity. It is not a call to despair. Why not? Because Jesus has already experienced the ultimate vanity of vanities for us. Can you imagine? See, Jesus' favorite book was Deuteronomy. We talked about that when we studied the Shema together. He quotes it more than any other book. Deuteronomy is like Proverbs. What happens to the righteous? The righteous live a long, good life in the land. Who was more righteous than Jesus? Who should have lived the longest and the best life in the land? Jesus. But his life was cut very short. Can you imagine the feelings of Mary, his mother? He experienced the deepest frustration and the deepest perplexity. Now, I know we tend to think of Jesus only as God and not as human. But can you hear the frustration and the perplexity when on the cross he says, My God, my God, why? Why? See, you do have a wonderful high priest. When you say why because you're frustrated and you're perplexed, you're not alone. Jesus is right there with you because he has said a deeper and a more profound why than you and I ever will have to. Underneath you always are those everlasting arms. Because no matter how deep in frustration and perplexity you go, there is somebody who's gone deeper And he's gone deeper for you. But he didn't stay there. He was raised from the dead. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
which I believe is the longest chapter in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul brings that wonderful discussion of the resurrection from the dead to a conclusion by saying, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is never vanity of vanities. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, ultimately, nothing is in vain. We will find out, eventually, that everything that has gone on in our lives makes perfect sense. And we will experience a fulfillment, a profound sense of joy and satisfaction that we've never experienced in this life. We can not only know that life is not in vain, we can find great joy and satisfaction in this life under the sun. How so? Next sermon. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for your mercy and for your grace to us in Christ. We bless you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, not only teaching us what life is like when it is a straight path, but also how to deal with it when it's more like a maze. Grant us grace to face the vanity of life, the frustrating and the perplexing in this world as we experience it. But grant us to do so not with despair, but with hope. Because Jesus is our great high priest who has lived the perfect life of righteousness in our place and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. And who was raised so that we might have a right relationship with God, experiencing joy and satisfaction in this life, even as we anticipate the fullness of that joy and satisfaction in the life to come. Praying in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, let's